stadium. Their silence is deafening. 136 Israelis are still being held hostage by Hamas. Bring them home. You're home alone. You have an uneasy feeling in the darkness. Like someone or something is watching you. Why is it suddenly cold in this room? You hear footsteps, whispers, or even laughter. You go to check. You feel a presence behind you. And then the fear sets in. I'm K-Town, and you're listening to Paranormal Fears. I'm Kayla Ambrose, and I'm an author, a wisdom teacher, and a paranormal researcher. And I have six books, including the one we're going to talk about today, Spirits of New Orleans, Voodoo Curses, Vampire Legends, and Cities of the Dead. I've dedicated my life to this type of work since I was a little girl and onward, and I love to teach about the ancient mystery school teachings from ancient Greece and Egypt and uh, civilizations further back. Uh, even than that, and I've seen ghosts and spirits and things of light and dark my whole life, so I don't know if I had a choice. I had to uh, had to do this, and that's what I do. That's awesome. Okay. Now, all right, so let's go back into your early life, because you said you started to see spirits and ghosts and things as a child, so can you tell us about some of those experiences, and then what what some of these entities look like? Were they human or were they something <laughs> something else? Absolutely. So I was raised Catholic, and we were taught that you have guardian angels uh, and around you. So when I first saw uh, beings around me, I guess I'll call them, some of them were very bright white light. So I said, oh, okay, that's my guardian angel. And I would say, oh, you know, I was in bed, sleep, and I'd wake up because, you know, feel them around and see them. And so I'd be like, oh, are you my guardian angel here? Let me make some room for you to come lay on the bed. Are you tired? <laughs> and so at first, that's what I saw that I remember the most when I was very young. As I got older, I started to see other things coming around, too, that were more shadowy, not as bright, and not as nice. And so I started then to figure out that there were lots of different things. Some looked human, some looked partially human, <laughs> and some looked like something completely different, um, not even as much of a form, darker, shadowy, things like that. And so I started, you know, I kept a diary since I was a little girl, and I started to take notes early on, and I used all those notes in my books afterwards um, from everything from when I would see auras around people and energy around them. Those notes, original notes all these years became my book about the aura, same with psychic ability and the other things I teach and write about, and I've always kept a journal, too, of places I go where I've experienced something with a ghost or or spirits or entities or something. And all of those compiled in my research, I guess, since I was very little, uh, just helped my work and helped me to understand that there's a lot more than what we see to this world. And I've always been able to see them with my eyes as well as many times feel them as well, just energetically. So 
there's a little bit of everything out there. And, you know, I don't think I've seen all of it, but I've seen a good amount. And that's cute. You said you would see the little, you'd see the ghost and you'd be like, okay, you're tired. So get in the bed with me. You know, that's, (laughs) (laughs) I don't think I've ever heard that one before. (laughs) Well, let me ask you, did they actually get get into the bed? With you? No, they would kind of just smile and float around, you know. But I was, you know, raised in Louisiana. I'm a good little Southern girl just trying to take care of people. That's funny. I had to ask you. I had to ask you that. Um, when you, you, you and I talked earlier, but I remember you telling me that, you know, you were just like a child that actually, you really knew what you wanted to learn or find out about our world at an early age, like you were getting the, tell the story about the library books and things like that. Oh, it's, that's sure. amazing. Really. So I came back remembering my past lives and I could, I told my parents, I'm like, I remember a past life we had together and I explained it to them where we lived in Eastern Europe, how we died in a carriage and the horse during a storm going off the side of a mountain. I'd have all these past life memories of things I did. And How, how them, old were you when you started to Realize Ooh, those, those dreams, probably from what I remember, I'd say six, you know, that I remembered having them and talking to my parents about that. And then I would have prophetic dreams. I would tell them things that were going to happen to us or to other people we knew um, and those type of things where they started paying attention when enough of them happened. And then I was I began to read really, really young. And so by the time I was like nine or ten, I'd go to the library all the time. And they would call my parents and say, you have to come pick her up. She's ruined another book, and you're going to have to buy the book. And what I was doing, I was in the library reading all the books about ancient mythology and all the stories, and I was editing them. I was like, that's not how that happened. That's not the true history, and that's not what they're writing about Medusa. That's not true. She, you know, the snakes on her head meant wisdom, not, you know, how they're trying to describe. So I'd be writing in the books like an editor, just trying to correct it you know make things right and then I'd be talking to adults at the tables and lecturing them on it and saying no this is what ghosts actually do and this is (laughs) this is what the history of this actually means and they thought I was so entertaining but I ended up with a great um, library on my own at home because my parents had to buy all those books I wrote in (laughs) that's crazy and you know what I mean something like you really knew exactly what you were talking about. Did your parents ever try to verify any of the things that you were correcting in those books? Did they ever try to research for you or talk no, to somebody about what hands. you were saying? <laughs> I wish, but they had their hands. You know, but a lot of it is, has come out now, even from, you know, um, when I would write those things now in history. And I watched that even like early 2000, the History Channel started doing documentaries and they would reveal those things. I was teaching things like, all kinds of things, like even um, all kinds of history things, correcting it, that have, you know, since come out. And I'd go to Catholic school, and I would engage with the Monsignor there and say, Mary Magdalene wasn't a bad person, like you're saying, that's not true. And then later, um, a couple years later, the church came out and said, oh, she wasn't um, how we described her to be a lady of ill repute. That wasn't true. And they admitted that sometime in the, um, uh, 
later in the late 60s, I think, and finally admitted that, that it wasn't the truth. So um, there were some things like that that probably could be verified for what I was seeing, but they had their hands full with me because I was reading people's auras, seeing things psychically, having dreams that came true. Um, my father had this friend that would come over, um, and my father noticed that the guy would like end up talking to me a lot, and he always had a newspaper with him. And we had friends over. My parents had friends of theirs over all the time. But he was like, okay, why is this one guy I was talking to my daughter with a newspaper? And he knew I loved to read, so he thought, oh, maybe the guy's helping me learn to read. No, he was showing me the horse races and asking me which ponies' names I liked the best. And I didn't know better. And I was picking the right horses, and he was going to bet on them. And my father caught one day, caught on, and told me that's wrong to do and, you know, not to do that. And ever since I've never been able to pick them again, it's like, oh, okay, that's wrong. So don't ask yeah, me but did any of them win? Did any of them <laughs> Yes, horse- he was winning. That's why he came back every week. Because my father was like, you know, he was friends with the guy, but he's like, this guy's here every weekend. What's up with this? So he finally caught on what the guy was doing with me. <laughs> that's funny. That is and so I didn't fun. know because I was little. So I would look at the paper and one name would get bigger to me. It would just grow really big. And I'd be, oh, I like that one. That one has a lot of light around it. And he would just mark them and, and go. Wow. Do, okay. Yeah. You were in the sweet spot as far as age is concerned with remembering your past lives. I mean, they start around that early age, you know, three, four, five, six, somewhere around there. Then, yeah. Then supposedly you know, those memories dissipate, you know, as you get older. Um, do you still remember some of your past lives vividly or has it pretty much left you? Absolutely. So what happens, what um, is taught in the mystery schools is, <clears throat> you know, the soft spot on a baby's head of the skull there Yeah. Mm-hmm. when a baby's born and they tell you to be careful. It actually takes till age seven before that spot is fully thickened. Um, and and hard. So that's why children at a very young age are so much more psychic and see through the veil to the other side, uh, because that opening there actually uh, helps them go back and forth. So a lot of children after the age of seven, when that closes, and they don't have a reason to use it anymore, and no one's teaching them to keep using it, uh, it, it closes and they, and they forget about it. But for me, I was born so psychic and so wide open that it never stopped. I actually tried to stop it in high school. I wanted to just be a normal girl (laughs) and not see all these things and feel these things. And I tried to close it down and I managed to do it for about maybe three years at most, but it was just so strong in me. It was like fighting in me all the time to come back out. I couldn't, I was just, I was born this way and I had to, to be this way, you know, and I tried to be, I guess, you know, if we want to talk Harry Potter, I tried to be a muggle for a while, tried to, you know, fit in. But um, I like to say I had to come out of the broom closet and just be me, and I did. So, yeah. Well, <laughs> you, know, you are. I just had to own it. Well, what about now? I mean, do you see spirits around you now? Yeah. Are you still still? Okay. And that's what those Spirits in New Orleans book is about because the publisher is called America's Haunted Road Trip. And they ask different writers to write about a state or a city that they're that they know very well or that they live in. I've written two books with this publisher. The other one's called Ghost Hunting North Carolina, where I cross the whole state looking at haunted sites. But this one's about New Orleans because it's such a haunted city, and I'm from Louisiana. Um, and so 
I um, see ghosts, spirits, and other entities all the time. I do readings for people where I go into their Akashic records and astral travel and, you know, talk to them about their past lives. I've studied um, with all types of teachers to do this type of work, including what I teach now with the mystery schools, which was the old way of doing this, where you had to prove you could do these things in double-blind studies. And I'll give you an example. So when, um, you know, I'm dating myself here, but back in the day before we had cell phones, we had to call each other right on landlines. And um, I had a teacher in a different state, and I was at the point where I was ready to graduate from astral traveling and to show him I could prove prove that I could do it. So he said, okay, I'm going to pick a day, and I'm going to call you at random, and I'm just going to tell you a person's first name. And you have to go find that person through astral travel. And how you do that is when you think of someone and you know them, you have a cord that connects from you through your aura to that person. Those are the connections that we have with each other. And so he said, I'm going to tell you a name. You won't know this person, but I do. And you have to follow the cord from me to them and find them. I said, okay. So uh, he called me one day. He said, the person's name is Renee. Go find them. So I had to tune into him and find his cord and find the one that vibrated with the energy known as Renee and then follow that cord to see where I could find it. So I followed it really far. It was in Europe. And uh, I'm all of a sudden I'm standing in this market next to this person I know to be Renee. And he, the person's looking at cheese. And so I'm, I'm like, okay, well, first of all, what does Renee look like? Because it could be man or woman with that name. And I see it's a man. And he's looking at cheese. And I can't even say the name of the cheeses because they're in a foreign language. He's like in Sweden or Switzerland, something like that. I can tell kind of by the way the market looks and the cheeses. So I write down these cheeses. I write, I describe the man, write it all down and come back out of it. And then I have to go call my teacher. So my teacher is in another state here in the U.S. and I call him and tell him. And he told Renee not to tell him where he was going or where he would be. So he just picked a random time. Um, so then he had to hang up with me, go call Renee, because he didn't want me to be able to psychically get the information from him as my teacher. So then he went and called Renee and verified with Renee, where were you? And Renee verified, uh, I was in a market buying cheese at this time, blah, blah, blah. So that's how they do a double-blind study when you train for this stuff. And then I went on uh, to, to study it further. I've studied with... Um, uh, and done the workshops like with people who did the psychic spy program that was part of uh, the army at one time and just all kinds of things like that. I've continued. Are you talking about remote viewing? Yeah, yeah. Who, who did you study with? Thing. Who was the um, instructor? So I used to be with the Rhine Research Center. I used to be on their board of directors, and we'd have all of them there. So Joe McMonagall uh, used to do workshops there at the Rhine wow. with remote viewing. Yeah, he's one of the big guys. I mean, yeah. he's like famous. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So I was involved with the Ryan Research Center for a long time that, you know, was part of Duke. And I served on the board of directors. And uh, I was the first psychic ever to do that. Most of them are scientists and, you know, big researchers like that. But um, I've been vetted in a lot of places. You know, I teach at Edgar Casey's ARE and um, Omega Institute, places like that, where, you know, they, they do vet you to make sure you're, you can do your thing. Yeah. And I've helped 
people in military and police work, all kinds of things with even how to read auras and sense them. So if they're going up to a building, you know, and you can't, you don't know who's inside, you can sense if there's energy there or not. And human energy, I mean, but you could probably do the same thing to sense spiritual. I've been used like that too. I was um, part of a group that got to stay overnight in the capital of North Carolina, the state capital, because it's haunted. And they locked us in with some paranormal researchers. And I was kind of like the antenna. I could hone in and feel where they were and say, okay, bring the equipment over here. <laughs> so that was a fun night. We stayed there all night. Chasing ghosts. It was a good time. Really? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Did you? Okay. Have you ever... Okay, I got several questions there. We're going to stay there for a second. First of all, um, is that when you say mystery schools, you're not talking about remote viewing schools. You're talking about something else? No, I'm talking about these were the original ancient mystery schools, what they taught in ancient Egypt and ancient Greece and uh, times before that, you know, what people call Atlantis, things like that. These are, they're called mystery schools. Um, my first book is about them, Nine Life-Altering Lessons, Secrets of the Mystery Schools Unveiled. And they've been taught student to teacher um, for thousands of years, passing down the ancient teachings and how to really get to know yourself at the deepest level, the soul level, where you know who you are, why you're here, what your purpose is, what why you incarnated back as a soul in this lifetime to do what you're here to do. Um and that you're not just the personality known as who you are at this time, at this moment. This is just one blip in your, you know, overall multiple lifetimes. And so I work with students to teach them that. And um, I do a lot of different things because I see the auras so much. I work with colors. I'm part of an international color group marketing group where we see uh, future trends and pick what colors were, are going to be popular 10 years from now, you know, according to the energy and where things are going. And um, I work with a lot of clients all over the country, well, and universities too, and other countries too, where I see future trends and help them with their businesses and uh, or what they're building and creating and where that's going to go. Because I've always seen kind of what's coming, you know, 10, 15 years, 20 years ahead with um, manufacturing and different trends and, and uh, everything. Like from, stock market trends, yeah, even stuff yeah, like that. Wow. Yeah, and things where schools are going, where uh, marketing's going, where businesses, what's going to be hot, what's not. I was always able to do that and picture things way ahead. Like I was describing the disruptor for Amazon that was going to come. I gave a talk about that with, um, at a financial uh, convention way back when and, and was explaining. Now they're called Instacart and Shipped. I was explaining how there would be deliveries that would come to you in two hours instead of people thinking Amazon was fast coming in two days, you know, and that that's a big disruptor. And every time you have a big disruptor, it changes the market again and again. And talking about 3D printing before it existed and 4D printing, what that's going to mean for us when 4D printing gets here. And all those all those type of futuristic talks, I do a lot of that as well. Wow. You are very, very interesting. I could do just a whole show <laughs> on you. Wow. Who are um, you? You're very intuitive. I hope you use it well, too. Wow. Okay, I have to, I have more questions about you if you don't mind staying there. Now, I promise we won't get to your book. Okay. Um, you can remote view. That's amazing. What about, can you, and you've worked with 
you've also worked with law enforcement as well. Do you do that with, are you doing that in conjunction with trying to solve crimes? Can you do that? Can you remote view like unsolved crimes and well, here's if you the wanted thing. to? I, I really struggled with college because I had two scholarships to go one way or the other with pre-law or communications. And I really thought I wanted to go into law. And I ended up working for a district attorney and working for two clerk of courts. And I realized I can't because I'm such an empath. I feel everything emotionally. Um, and there I was working at the clerk of courts office, pulling all the evidence for trials, right? In the big vault, touching all this evidence. And I have psychometry where if I hold something, I it's like I see the movie of what happened. Uh, and I just couldn't do it. It was too much for me as an as an empath, you know, to see and feel that every day. So I just it was it, I can't I can't be of the best service in that way because it's too it's too hard on me. So um, I've helped some police officers, but I do not work like with the police force or helping in that or, or with the crime things. I I know psychics that do that, and I think it's amazing, but I, it's just I can't. Or I won't, I guess. Yeah. Um, You mentioned that you see colors. I'm not sure if you're saying that, like you have synesthesia. Do you have synesthesia? Uh, You know, I've uh, I've actually talked to Maureen Seberg about that, who's really famous for synesthesia. You know, and uh, talked with her. Mine's a little different because. You know, like she'll taste the color or taste a number and, you know, or the sensory things like that. I just see the aura around people. So I see all the different layers. I see a physical layer, a mental layer, an emotional layer, a spiritual layer, all these layers around each person's aura. And years ago, John Edward used to have a show. He put it on the Internet where um, I forgot the name of it now, but his last one he did. And um, I was on his show for like a year and a half reading orders for people on there with this group of people that he did with that. And I've just always been able to see the auras. And so that was, I wrote a book about it called The Awakened Aura. And the colors change in every person and the size of the aura changes as well. So the different fields change. Like when you're emotional, that layer of your aura gets really big and it it overtakes all the rest of your field. So you know how they say, oh my gosh, you're so upset you're out of your mind? You really kind of are because your mental field gets really little and your your emotional field gets so big it overtakes your your auric field and makes it a little wild while you're all ramped up. And so when the physical, you know, layer isn't uh, very big, you can see sometimes that like disease is, you know, kind of building and it's affecting the physical layer before it comes into the body. You can follow the spiritual layer and see if there's I see markers in it. I call it karmic markers. They're like these little imprints there that show me things that you brought back karmically and how it's affecting you. Um, so there's all these different layers. And so if you go to like a, a expo and you get a aura picture, you know, people say, oh, look at my aura. I'm like, well, that's your aura in that minute. But your aura changes all the time because it's like emotions in motion. The colors are always changing. And so they move and, and they fluctuate and they're, they're as unique as a fingerprint. They're really amazing. I didn't and know And I've that. seen those since I was little. Okay. You know what? I didn't, I, I thought your aura stayed the same all the time. No. You know, I didn't, I didn't know that. Um, let me ask you this and you may not know it, but I had one 
guy on my other show that studied, he's a doctor, studied synesthesia. Uh, he's located in Washington, D.C. But I'm wondering, and I should have asked him, but I'm, I'm going to ask you this. Do you know if synesthesia, synesthesia, people that have synesthesia, if they have ever uh, described or said that they see colors that aren't in our color spectrum? Yes, they see a lot of colors that that um, they're in our color spectrum. It's just our eyes aren't attuned to see them, right? right. Um, and you know what's so fascinating? Um, there was a long time way back in history where we couldn't see certain colors like blue when we were first evolving here. It took us later later in history. You can Google that, look it up, before we could see certain hues of colors. And it's kind of fascinating because there's a lot of history that talks about that, not just with color, but if you don't know of something and you can't conceive it, it's hard to see it. And there were also stories about, um, I think it was Ponce de Leon, I'm trying to remember exactly, but he and those Spanish explorers, when they washed up uh, in their ships off the shore and the indigenous people there did not see the ships at first. And then finally when the men got close enough in the little uh, rowboats closer to shore, they noticed the men and they thought the men were kind of just appearing out of nowhere in the water. And it's because they had never seen big ships like that. So they really couldn't see the ships at first. And it took them a while for their eyes to adjust to see uh, and to understand. And so there's a lot about if we haven't been able to visualize something, we don't see it. And I think that's why some people can see ghosts and spirits and some can't. Uh, because like I was born right where mine was kind of wide open and it stayed. So I saw him as a child and could always see him. But when, like I said, the soft spot of the head closes back in, then some people can't see anymore. And as children, you just think you don't think about it or, you know, if you don't have that ability that stays open. But if it stays open and you're more intuitive, you see those things that others can't see. And it's the same way some with colors, some with just things that people can't conceive of that are right in front of their face. And you can even try this like in your home. You can put something in plain sight that you kind of want to hide, but you can really hide things in plain sight, like they said. And if a person's not in the right mind to see it, they won't. And we've all done this. Like, where's my glasses? Or I said that. Where's my right phone? There? And it's sitting right there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's the same kind of analogy. So, yeah, they do see a lot of other colors. And um, we're being attuned again. We're, we're going to start seeing and feeling more. It's happening for everyone. That's part of what I wrote about in the Awakened Aura book is there's a crystalline energy coming around our aura that's going to make us better receivers, better with telepathy, better to uh, send and receive messages and attune. And also sound therapy is going to be really important as well as light therapy with colors. So you're going to see a lot more work with that with lasers and light uh, for regeneration and healing. And the same with sound and sound vibration to move things and to heal things and even the ancient Egyptians use sound to break up blockages in the body. Yeah, synesthetes are so amazing and so interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, now, okay, let me ask you, have you ever sensed, um, I know you go into a lot of haunted places, and we're going to start into your book now, but do you have you ever sensed something like an inhuman energy in any yes. of the places that you've been in? Um. 
you know, sometimes it wasn't the places I was in. It's just um, that I was looking specifically, like in these books, you know, I was looking for haunted things that were more ghosts. And there's such a difference between a ghost and a spirit, right? And then an entity is the third type of thing. Um, I have encountered those things you're talking about. Um, <laughs> one, because one was looking for me, evidently, or I... I disrupted it somehow, you know, where it was. I don't know if I came across it or it came across me, but uh, it's not something, you know, I care to repeat anytime soon, for sure. So it scared you? Yeah, I mean, it was... Oh, yeah, it had, you know, um, so it, we'll talk about it energy-wise, right? When you come across a ghost, and here's my definition, a ghost is, is earthbound. It hasn't crossed over. It stayed stuck on the earth plane. And so it's either afraid to cross over, doesn't know it's dead, or some other reason, has unfinished business. So it never crossed fully over. It stays earthbound. And it will pull energy, drain your batteries, pull energy, make the lights blink, whatever, because it's pulling energy to try to manifest or, you know, communicate. And it can leave you a little tired because it's pulling energy. And if you're around it too much, it can feel it make you feel a little bit drained. Um, a spirit is someone or something that is crossed over. It's in the spiritual planes, but it's allowed to travel back and forth. It crosses back and forth through the veil. If it's what we'll call a good spirit, let's just say for want of a better word, um, it's full of light and it doesn't drain any energy from you. It's self-sufficient, self-charging, doesn't have any problems, won't make your lights blink or drain your batteries. It's got its own energy power, and it's come back over. If it's an entity of a different type, and we're not talking human, then again, depending on what it is, you know, you feel the energy. It could feel really good, or it could feel really dark and draining. And the things I talk about that are the really scary ones that uh, there's a feeling of dread. There's a feeling of no hope. There's a feeling of you feel weaker. You feel like it's sucking your life energy away it's it just really powers you down and you know that's something you don't want to spend any time around if possible got you um okay so we're going to talk about you but first of all um you said you um you're from louisiana but you're not from new orleans right yeah that's right okay and so tell us like if I wanted to go to New Orleans and I wanted to visit one of the famous cemeteries, which one would you recommend that I go to? Well, I made it so easy for you because the book's a guide. It's a travel guide. And I say I'm your travel guide to the other side. And these books I wrote um, not only give you a detailed chapter-by-chapter where to go, but also tell you as you're in that area of the city, the best places in that area to go shop, to go eat, to go have a drink, to go stay at the hotel, what, you know, what places to go. So you get the whole experience because as fun as it is to look for ghosts in New Orleans, it's just as much fun to eat there. The food's amazing. So you gotta, you gotta take in the whole spirit of the city. And um, so I start you out in chapter one at the best cemetery in New Orleans, even though they're all amazing. But uh, it's St. Louis Cemetery, number one, and it's probably the most famous. And as you probably know, the cemeteries there, they're tombs and they're built above ground because it's so marshy there and swampy that, uh, as I explained in the book, 
when they first tried to bury them underground and when it would rain heavier storm, the caskets and the bones would float back up and float down the, you know, the streets. So they realized they had to build above ground tombs. So that's why they're called cities of the dead because they look like little cities, you know, little buildings there. Incredible architecture. Um, you know, each family almost outdoes the other. Some of them building just in, incredible shrines in a way to their loved ones. And probably the most famous person there at St. Louis Cemetery Number One uh, is the tomb of Marie Laveau. And people visit there every day and uh, leave little offerings there at her tomb. Um, Nicholas Cage has. Uh, one built there it looks like a pyramid there's just all kinds it's fascinating and um it'll take you a while to go through there you know there's a lot to look at it's it's pretty incredible but in even in that area not too far away there's like 13 other cemeteries that are just as interesting so you really can't go wrong but that's definitely one to put on the list if that's what you're going for for st louis you said it's number one is that a guided tour or they do they just let people walk through there and Go wherever. Okay, so it is open to the public, but I say, and I put this in the book, go with a tour guide. And the reason why is, first of all, it's kind of a, a maze. So you, you can get turned around a little lost in there, too. And it's not like you can look up to see your way out because they're really tall, right? So you can spend more time in there than you wanted to. You can get turned around. <laughs> Se- second, they give such a great tour, all the guides there. They know the history. They know the tombs to take you to, so you're not wasting your time. They're going to take you to the best ones. And third, um, you know, uh, there is crime in the city there, and you have to watch, you know, you have to be safe and careful. Um, and nothing looks more like a target than a tourist walking around with a big camera. And it's not, I'm not afraid of the dead in the cemeteries, but there are sometimes humans that hang out there that will try to take advantage of someone who's, you know, on their own. So go with the tour guides. They, it's safety in numbers. There's a big group. They know what they're doing. And it's it's really the best way to do that. Do they still have jazz funerals? Oh, yeah. All the time. <laughs> yeah, with the second line and everything. So, you know, you've got the funeral and you've got the music, the band playing, and then the people with their handkerchiefs waving in the air and, and uh, their, you know, umbrellas, their parasols and dancing and uh, doing the whole second line behind it. And absolutely, you know, I think I write one of the chapters in the book. I say, of all the places, you know, I'd like to be buried. New Orleans is always number one because they do it right. That sounds amazing. I would love to to go to New Orleans. I mean, it's on my on my bucket list. I mean, everything's on my bucket list. <laughs> well, um, you should, and you know, um, I mean, Happy Mardi Gras. We're almost it's about to happen right now, but and maybe that's not the best time to visit because it's really crazy during Mardi Gras. But um, especially any time in the fall or winter is a really great time to go. Um. And thank you for telling me that. I'll I'll absolutely keep that in mind. Uh, What about, okay, let's talk about Marie Laveau's tomb. For those that don't know, they probably don't even know who she is. A lot of people don't know. Tell us who she was and what she's famous for. I love Marie Laveau. I'd love everybody to know who she is. She is the queen of voodoo as far as New Orleans is concerned. And she was so famous in her day. So she was a hairdresser, had her own business, was a woman that 
really just was amazing like that, you know, um, back in the day to have that power. She knew everyone and everyone went to her to get their hair done because she was fantastic at it. So she knew everyone's secrets because we all talk to our hairdressers, right? Tell them everything. So she, you know, would, um, could read for the ladies. She could tell them what was coming up. She'd advise them. She'd counsel them. And how she really got famous was one day, one of the ladies that she uh, did hair for, uh, you know, while she, she was also a voodoo practitioner as well. So she was known in certain circles as the queen of voodoo, but others knew her as the other. But they knew she did this and did magic and had this power. So one lady went to her and said, my husband and they were very wealthy and our son's been brought up on these trumped up charges that aren't true. Please, please, can you do anything? And the lady brought her husband to talk to her and she said, okay, I, I will see what I can do. I believe you that he's innocent. So she began her voodoo rituals and created with all these ingredients and put them in this little pouch and then began her prayers and her spirit work. And for three days, she did this. And on the third day, when the trial was supposed to begin, she started early that morning and she put hot peppers in her mouth. And they were burning her mouth, but she kept them in there. And she walked all the way from her house to St. Louis Cathedral and went there and lit a candle and prayed that that this boy would be found innocent. And then she walked from St. Louis Cathedral to the courthouse and she knew everybody in the city. They all loved her. Everyone probably, you know, uh, owed her a favor or something or, or, or in gratitude for something she had done for them. And so they let her into the courthouse into where the judge sat. And she put those hot peppers, took them out of her mouth, put them in the rest of the pouch and put that pouch underneath uh, the judge's chair. And she went and told the man, okay, I've done what I can do. So... Uh, he knew the charges were so trumped up. It was his enemies, and they had gotten all these fake witnesses and everybody to say these things. But at the end of the day, the judge didn't believe it, and, and the boy was set free. So the husband was so appreciative. He paid her a huge amount of money, and it was set enough to either buy the house she lives in or to pay it off, one or the other. And so then word really spread and everybody came to her, like needing whatever they needed for business or health or whatever. She practiced voodoo and you can still go, voodoo, you know, voodoo is not like how Hollywood makes it out. So dark and sinister. It's a beautiful religion and it deserves to be respected like all religions. And you can still go to Bayou St. John where Marie Laveau would go and do her practices and and lead, and you can see people today doing voodoo there, especially midsummer is a really good time to see it. They do a big festival at there at Bayou St. John at midsummer, um, and you can see just like it was done in her time. She went on to continue doing her voodoo spiritual practice and helping so many people in the city. She would comfort the sick, and she worked with Père Antoine. I write about him in the book, and he was a really good priest, and they joined forces and worked together. And she would comfort those that were in jail, those that were about to be executed. She would go and feed them and comfort them. And she had found out about these two men that, again, were innocent and had been brought up on charges and were going to be executed. And 
back then they did these horrible things. They had public executions and people came from all over like it was a festival and brought picnic lunches. Don't yes, watch it was execution. horrible. Little kids yeah, would just, be there looking just crazy. Little yeah, kids. like you just, how, how could we even, you just can't even imagine that. But they did and she was very against that. Um, so she went home to do her ritual to try to, you know, stop at this and to help the men. She had said she had made them gumbo and put some things in it that at least would calm them because their fate was kind of set now. So it was a beautiful sunny day. People are out picnicking, like a, again, like some kind of festival waiting for the execution. And all of a sudden it said clouds came up out of nowhere and lightning and thunder and the wind was roaring and um, part of the gallows fell apart and the men fell down to the ground and were hurt and the executioner had to hurry and get the gallows back up uh, to hang them, which he did. But there were trees falling and lightning and people were screaming. So they started crowding each other, just like you see at, when a, at a concert and people, you know, the mad rush there. They were trampling each other, crushing people, all being pushed into the gallows on top of everything with the storm. And so many people were hurt. It was such a disaster that it was then declared that there would never be a public execution again in New Orleans. And people tout Marie Laveau with creating that storm and making that happen. So those kind of things, you know, wouldn't happen like that anymore. And almost anyone that can trace some family history back to that time has a story about Marie Laveau and what she did. And she's known as the Queen of Voodoo, and I think she's really the Queen of New Orleans for what she did for the people, just so loving and caring. And um, her daughter went on to continue her legacy, as did other women after her. And um, I'm sure, you know, uh, I even write in the book, like there's her tomb you can go visit. And people go there and ask her for for favors, you know, but I've heard people have better luck if they just go to St. Louis Cathedral and light a candle there and say her name and ask her for it there because she did so much work in, in that way as well that you can almost appeal to her anywhere in New Orleans and ask her for help and they say, you know, she will do what she can. She'll do what she can. And have have anybody, has anybody ever said that they've seen her, seen her haunt the area, even the home that she lived in? The closest I've heard is at her home, which I think is on St. Anne Street, where her cottage was. I don't know if the exact cottage still stays or not, but I've heard a few stories of, like, maybe seeing a glimpse of her, but it's just a glimpse. It's really fast. And, you know, I don't think she's haunting it. I She's someone who was such a beautiful spiritual person that, uh, you know, she's not a ghost, like, staying here and haunting. She's she's over there in the spirit realms and um, maybe she'll choose to come back. But then that gets us into that whole conversation of, you know, you keep coming back as a soul. And so how long do you keep coming back in one incarnation of something versus another? You usually move on. So I, I think she's moved on well from that and is whatever her new incarnation many, many times over as Marie Laveau is now, she's walking amongst us doing, you know, good things somewhere right now. Uh, I know that when people go to New Orleans, they flock to her um, burial site um, to see to see that. You see a ton of pictures of that on, online. I want to go ahead and also ask you, like, say uh, we wanted to eat some good food at, at a reportedly 
very haunted restaurant, what, who would you recommend or what would you recommend? Well, okay, do you want friendly or do you want scary? Let's get scary. <laughs> we want scary. <laughs> oh, my goodness. The most scared. Where would I go? Um, and you have to eat there, too, right? Okay, let me think about that. Because the scariest ones are like the Lori house, you know, but that's private now. Um, Who owns that house? Is that a, So you're saying that's a private residence? Yeah, you know, Nicholas Cage actually bought it for a while, and um, then he had to sell it, and um, then another company bought it, and uh, they turned it into condos, I think, now is the last I heard. So a lot of the places like that, the scariest ones, funny enough, are private now, but that's the scariest, you know, the stories you heard about that with Madame Lawlory. No, 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 I haven't heard anything. Tell us about uh, it. American Horror Story covered that. They did a whole thing on that with her, you know, and I think Kathy Bates played her and um, that show. So that was really gruesome. Um, what? Okay, maybe, wait, wait, wait. Hold on a minute. What happened in that? Did some, some I, I missed that. I don't, I don't know anything about that house. Oh my gosh. Okay, you have to look that up. It's really scary. So her husband um, was a surgeon and uh, gosh, He kept people enslaved in the house and did all kinds of macabre, like, experiments on them and surgeries where he would move their body parts around, turn them into, like, grotesque, like, crab people and where, you know, everything was misshapen in their bodies and chained them in there. And um, a lot of, you know, people would talk about these things. And she had a lot of enemies. She had married this man later in life. Um, I think she was a widow before. And she had some enemies that were trying to get a hold of her money is what it was because she was a woman of power and influence in the city. And she remarried this guy, the surgeon. Um, and he turned out to just be awful. So she actually petitioned for a divorce and I don't think it was granted to her. She tried to say that cruel and unusual things were being done to her. Um, the house caught fire and they're not sure. They think it was someone else in the home that started the fire and, um, people were rushing in and they could hear the screaming of these people that were chained inside and trying to save them. And, he took off. She, she stayed there trying to fight the fire. So she was really, for a long, long time, when it, all that was found, what was done to those people, they blamed her and said she was this, like, horrible, evil thing that did this. And later, as, as more research has come out, it's shown that really it was that the guy she married and um, that they tried to trump her up on charges because her brother-in-law was trying to get the money that she had inherited from her her first husband. And so he was just trying to trump her up on charges so that he could take everything away from her and get it for himself. But forever she was considered to be this evil woman that was torturing these people and doing these things. That place is so haunted because those, there were people suffering in there for years and years and it before uh it was a private residence it used to be a furniture store for a while not too long ago and the guy would complain because every morning when he came into the store there'd be ectoplasm all over the furniture and everything so thick it was ruining the furniture and he would try to stay up at night to figure out he thought someone was playing a prank on him and he would try to stay up all night and always end up 
falling asleep and when he woke up he and everything would be covered in ectoplasm there are so many horrible stories about that place um ectoplasm is something that's a real thing yeah yeah um what else would happen did he see anybody did he hear screams or Whatever. He would hear people, yeah, people hear screams even. They say walking by. If you take any of the ghost tours, they're going to take you by that house. I listed in my book, I think it's like, um, I think it's chapter seven in my book. Um, and I, I give you, you know, I tell you, I went there. I tried to, you know, check out. But at the time, it was under construction. So I couldn't get in to go through it all. But, um, yeah, there's some, that's a, it's a bad place. That is exactly. insanity. That's insanity what happened there. That's crazy. Yeah, so there's there's some, and it, it, unfortunately it's tortured spirits, you know, they're in so much pain and agony that um, that's, that's what you're, you're wow. hearing and seeing there, you know. Uh, now, but let me tell you a fun place to go. The Court of Two Sisters. And um, it's one of my favorite places in the French Quarter. And two sisters own this place, um, and they were known as, like, the finest seamstresses in all of New Orleans. Everybody went there to have their stuff, their dresses and everything done by these two women. They were so well-known and respected. Queen Isabella of Spain sent them a thank-you gift, and she sent them these beautiful iron gates that they put at the entrance to their home there. Um, and now it's a restaurant called Quarter Two Sisters named after them. The gates are enchanted. These two sisters put a, a, a magical enchantment on the gates that if you touch them and make a wish that, you know, something will come true for you. So they still have the original gates given from Queen Isabella of Spain all those hundreds of years ago, hanging there. And so as you go into the restaurant to eat, you can touch the gates and make a wish. And you can feel the energy. They're so old. And then you walk through the courtyard, and they've the trees are growing outside where they've grown a canopy and made just all connected. The trees are connected in this outdoor canopy of live trees with a water fountain going and music. And they have jazz playing, and you eat out there. And you can feel... Not just the spirits of the sisters, but what we call elementals, like fairies, other things like that. You can feel the energy of the elementals in this garden. New Orleans everywhere is so magic because you've got Lake Pontchartrain on one side, the Mississippi River on the other side, the Gulf of Mexico. It's a crescent city, and it's got all these bodies of water and the shape of the crescent in the city. So it is one of the most magical places in the world because of the way the natural elements and the elementals are there supporting it. Um, you you really can't help but feel inspired, more creative, more uh, passionate, whatever it is, it, the magic is going to come out in you. I love to write, but when I go to New Orleans, I can't stop writing. It just pours out of me. It's so creative. That's why there are people dancing in the streets and musicians and artists painting and, and playing in the streets. It just it just bursts it out of you. It's an amazing, magical place. And so uh, you can go anywhere and see a ghost. I go in a store and I'm like, oh, they have a ghost. <laughs> you know, it's like, yeah. and I, I'll go to any store I was at shopping. Like, do you know you have a ghost? They're like, oh, yeah, we had some stuff. We had some things moving around the other night. This is happening. I'm like, yep, he's right over there, you know everywhere 
let me let me ask you this because I know that um when the hurricane came, I mean I heard this on the news, you know, the news never picks up anything paranormal, but people were reporting the ones that were tasked to go, come down to the city and rebuild the city that they were having a lot of paranormal experiences it was scaring the hell out of them um because that you know i guess that stirred up a lot of energy in the city understandably did you hear things like that after hurricane katrina hit the area yeah i did um and you know ghosts don't like to be disturbed they don't like it when you renovate their house so if you start tearing up their city they're really not happy and there's stories of, you know, some cemeteries that didn't get moved, and there's stories about uh, ghosts under the Superdome. There, there were some people buried there where the New Orleans Saints play football, right? Um, so do you know they have um, voodoo practitioners and priests and nuns, and if you ever go to a New Orleans game there, they bring in all of those religious ones, and they have them uh, pray and do things like sacred rights before every game to appease the spirits. you got to be kidding me. In the locker <laughs> room or out in public somewhere or out what? Out in public. Wow. In the Superdome. I didn't know that. Okay, that's amazing. Okay, <laughs> let me ask you this. One other place I want to ask you about. Well, wait a minute, two other places. One of them is Congo Square. You wrote about that in your book. What is the haunted archway? Well, there's yeah, there's an archway that you know, so Congo Square was where at the time, uh, gosh, going back in history now, way back, but when there were slaves in New Orleans at that time, Congo Square was where um, they would gather. And then after they became free, they still gathered there. And it became a marketplace, <clears throat> excuse me, where um, they could sell items, you know, and make money and build, start to build little businesses and things. But it was also where they could celebrate, play music, dance, do, you know, whatever they wanted to do. And so there's such a strong energy there that um, of all of that pent up energy and emotion of being oppressed, of being wronged, of being, you know, mistreated and also of the longing, the desire for things. And then when that finally happened, all that energy bursting forth. So when you have so much energy like that congregated in one place, it kind of opens up and creates, um, how would I say, like kind of a form of energy that holds there. So you feel it when you go through the archway there. You kind of can feel the transition. And if you really pay attention, it's almost like a portal. And you can, you can, how do I say, you can go through when you walk through. Because an archway is like a doorway. And doorways are portals. And you're taught this in magic um, and even in fairy tales. Like when you walk through a doorway, be careful because that's where the elementals are. That's where you can go through a portal. And an archway does the same thing. So some people report when they go through the archway that things can change and all of a sudden they're back in time and they're seeing what it was like back in that time. They're hearing the music, smelling the food, seeing the dancers, the whole thing. So it can move you. It's almost like a time portal. Yeah. Time slip. That's, that's, that's amazing. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah, that one's on my list too. I want to visit that area. What about the <laughs> the last one I want to ask you about is the Keys House, and I don't know how to pronounce the first part of that. Um, the Keys House is that Bogart, maybe something. I know it's not Bogart, but it's something Keys House. Gunshots and ghosts. It's like chapter eighteen. Oh, Beauregard, yeah, Beauregard. <clears throat> Keys House. That's funny. That um. What attracted you that one out out? I don't know. It's just I'm just going through it and it's talking about civil war stuff and gunshots and I don't know. Yeah, I I thought everybody always asked me about the casket girls. I thought you were gonna go there. So I'm like, Oh really? What's the go casket the girl? Stuff. Okay, we'll talk about that in just a sec. Go ahead. <laughs> oh yeah, because those are the vampires. That's where the original vampires came from. So um so there's a lot about the casket girls, you know, being brought up about that. So yeah, that's more of a history like that time, the Beauregard Keys House. It's another French quarter, you know, landmark. And um so it was named after General um I think it's like Toussaint. He has a really long name, Pierre Gustave Toussaint Beauregard. Um, and after the Civil War, he returned to New Orleans and he lived there um, where he started working for the railroad. And then he sold the home to uh, an Italian guy from Sicily. And it said that um, he was a big socializer, but that he also was maybe doing some things under the table, like, you know, moving liquor around and stuff like that. And so one day they heard gunshots coming from the home and they went and they found people that had been shot there, um, you know, and investigated. And the Italian family said that it had been ended by the mafia, that there was um, some type of fees that were being forced on them and that, you know, they weren't willing to pay it. And so their family had paid a price. And so, um, they they there was a thing that was said the mafia would do at that time, which was called the black hand. And so how they would send you a threatening letter, it would just be a letter and it had a like a handprint on it in black. And if you got that letter, you had to pay them back or else you were going to, you know, you were, someone was going to die. And so they were saying they had received one of those letters. And so um, the threats happened back and forth. And um, you know, so there was there was that energy there of people dying. But then it went back and forth and um other people bought it. One time one of the owners bought it, he wanted to turn it into a macaroni factory, but the neighbors I think fought against it because um it was a historical home and they wanted to keep it. So then it was sold to the Keys family and um who was tied to um a senator and the woman who who owned it, Francis um, she was a columnist. I think she worked for like Good Housekeeping, a lot of different books and things like that. And, you know, she kind of kept it as is, protecting it. And there always have been stories, and she would even share stories that it was very haunted. People would see um, a cat, a dog, a little girl. Um, and then they would also see kind of a replay at night, like a battle where there was um you would hear a cannon fire. You would see soldiers there. So going back to that first Beauregard, they said sometimes he would act that out, you know, and fire the cannon. Um, but people have said they've seen even more, like soldiers there um, falling like they're on the battlefield and see the smoke from the cannons um, and hear that. So they're not really sure why, because 
um, the only thing they could attach it to is General Beauregard. Um, he had a battle, the Battle of Shiloh, and it was really a bad one, right? A lot of men died under him, and um, like thousands. It was, he never really, he said he never really recovered from it, because I think like over 3,000 men died and another 2,000 really injured. And so the theory a lot of researchers have is that because he wrote about this, he talked about it, he had probably what we'd call PTSD now, right? Where he went over it every night, he'd wake up from it emotionally upset, that he created so much energy there and with his obsession about it, that he actually made an imprint of it there on the property where it acts out over and over and over. And we talk about this in the psychic world as being a thought form that, you know, just like the law of attraction, it says if you give energy to something long enough, you can manifest it. And um, people have learned to do that now, right? So, oh, get a vision board, do this, or think about this, manifest it. But if you have something that you focus on over and over that has a lot of emotionally charged energy, you can create a thought form that kind of um, will attach. And then the theory continues saying that because, you know, over 3,000 men died in that battle with him, that a lot of those men might have actually attached themselves to him as ghosts and kept around him, which made him even more grief-stricken, even more in the PTSD, um, and that they may have followed him to that house and then stayed there as his thought forms created that battlefield where they um, repeated over and over. And, and if you do that enough, it attaches to physical surroundings um, and kind of becomes an energy imprint there. So some people say they hear that, the battle. Others hear men screaming in Italian and hear the guns. Um, like I said, some see the pets. There's um, a little girl that a lot of people see that kind of comes from underneath there. There's just a lot of things. And it's a more interesting one because, yes, there there were those killings there. But there's so many other things that happen that no one can really... Um, identify exactly why the house has so much, uh, you know, ghostly energy like that. It's one of those mysteries no one's really figured out yet. It sounds like a great place to visit. Do, do you go there every time? Is that Do you have certain ones that you actually like to hit every time you come to the city? I do, yeah. Um, you know, I always go to the Quarter Two Sisters. I love that. I go... Um, <laughs> To a lot of the restaurants that are fun, like Antoine's and Arnaud's that I always go to. Um, the Hotel Monteleon is really fun. The spirits there are fun. And they have a great bar with a carousel that goes around. Um, I like to go to Our Lady of Guadalupe Church because St. Expedite's there, and it's it's real fun with that energy. Pat O'Brien's, I ran into a really fun ghost there um, in the bathroom of all places. But there's just a lot of um Really? You know, wait, wait, there. wait. You cannot glaze over that one. You gotta tell us about it. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, um <laughs> um let's see, I have gone there many times, but the time I ran into the ghost, um, I'm a big New Orleans Saints fan. And I was in the bar there, Pat O'Brien's hanging out, and we were playing, I forgot who it was. I wanna say the Giants, but I'm not really sure who it was, but someone like that. So um, I was really 
getting into it, they were talking smack and saying, oh, how they were going to win, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, oh, no, you're not, you know, and I'm talking back. And they're like, oh, look at this little girly. She knows football. She's spouting all this, right? And so they just keep messing with me. And I'm getting all hyped up, you know, as Saints fans do. We're, like, talking. So... Um, I grabbed the Tabasco sauce on the table and some other things there, and I mixed it all up, and I'm like, I just made a gris-gris bag, <laughs> like I'm doing voodoo on them, and I'm like, you're yeah. in trouble now, because you're going down, and so is your team, and you might have could have won, but not now, because uh, I put my mojo on the game, and I'm shaking this Tabasco, and I'm, they're looking at me, and they're like, oh my gosh, right, this woman, and they're, they're like, oh my gosh, don't put the voodoo on us, and I'm like, oh, it's too late, and so... Then I go I go off to the ladies' room, and because um, they were just obnoxious, they really they were not, you know, just in fun. And um, so I came, I went to the bathroom, and I come out of the bathroom, and um, I noticed there's someone standing at the sink next to me, and I'm just like, can you play what those men were saying, you know? And I was like, you know, they'll eat their words later, so they're ridiculous. And and then I hear a voice saying, yes, ma'am, they will indeed. And that's when I looked up because it was a man's voice. I'm in the woman's bathroom, and it was this elderly man standing next to me, and he had on, you know, black pants and a white shirt, um, and he had a little towel in his hand, and he kind of held the towel like out to me you know as I was washing my hands so I was shocked because like first first I saw him and it just looked like a man like what's he doing in the bathroom um and so then I realized okay this is a ghost because at first he looks informed but then they can't hold that for very long and they kind of get you know you can kind of see through him and so I got the feeling like he was a musician and maybe had played at Pat O'Brien's you know before and that he was just haunting Pat O'Brien's because he liked it there and but that's he kind of looked he had a vest on too he looked like someone that would have maybe been playing jazz there and it was real quick he was just friendly you know and he was just like yes ma'am they're good they they will indeed you know like saying yeah agreeing with me and stuff and i can just imagine like he has seen like so much there going on at pat o'brien's which it's just a great courtyard if you've ever you know outside there um they have these big fountains with water but it also has flames shooting through them it's so cool at night did that entity and, just i mean did that ghost just disappear or yeah that was all he was just like tried to hand me a towel it wasn't really a towel um you know because i when I put my hand that's when I realized he was a ghost but he had a towel he, he was there in the bathroom and um he was just sweet and I just I um you know I think he just hangs out there and I think he's a lucky sign when you see him so I always tell people like if you go in the bathroom there kind of you know if you see him it's good luck because that's you know how he was and oh we won that game so really? That's you know, why. maybe it was my voodoo maybe it was that ghost I don't know but, you know, we won it, and that's what matters. Awesome. Okay, so the last one I want to ask you about are the vampires. Okay. Vampires. What do you think about vampires? I love vampires. Love all vampire movies. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. Well, I think I saw one for real. Really? So. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah. Tell us about it. Um, well, two stories here. So. One, I was taking one of those carriage rides you can take in New Orleans, and we were going down this really dark street. I had one to go at night, and I asked the driver to take me some places they don't normally take you. I wanted to go off route, so I said, look, there's some other things I wanted to see. I heard there's some more haunted areas, and I want you to take me at this at night so I can, you know, try to pick up on it. So we're going, and all of a sudden we're down the street, and I feel this, like, terrible 
energy. It's like draining everything out of me. And I say to the driver, you know, what's going on? And the, the, I don't really think it's a horse. I think they're mules that they use. The mule's getting really skittish and trying to turn around. And the driver's trying to force them down the street. So I look past the driver and I see this form like of a man at the end of the street. Um, and the mule's really scared of him, doesn't want to go down there. And the guy's almost compelled. He's like, yeah, yeah, go on, go on. And so I'm like, hey, let's just turn around. I don't think we should go down there. But the guy, it's like he's not listening to me. It's like he's not even able to hear me. And he keeps trying to push the carriage down there. And as we get a little closer, I can just feel the energy coming off of this thing. And I realize it's not human. And it's draining my energy. And it's also trying to compel, uh, like a, a compulsion, which is like, you know, where you stop listening to your thoughts and it's, you're almost following this compulsion to like, come closer, come closer, come here. And it was doing that. So I touched the driver trying to shake his arm and say, turn around. And I realized he's kind of like in a hypnotic state and he's just, he's just, I think like compelled really to keep going closer to this man standing in the middle of the street, standing there, just like super still, not moving. And the mule's getting more and more scared and trying to turn around. And I just shake the guy. And I'm just like, hey, you know, and finally he snaps out of it. And I'm like, turn around. Let's go the other way. And so he did. He turned around. And as I turned back, I could see that thing, you know, getting a little closer. And I was just like, I put up everything I was taught, all my shields of white light and things. I blocked any energy being directed to us, put us in a bubble of light, and then just kind of shot it that way, like, back off, you know, not your, not your snack tonight, kind of <laughs> with want of a better word to put it. I know it sounds crazy. And then, um, later, um, I was friends with Brad Steiger. I don't know if you know, he's written like 170 books on the paranormal and has done, you know, dedicated his life to, you know, all that type of research and work. And I worked with a lot of researchers in, in all these fields. So I was talking to Brad Steiger and telling him, you know, here's what happened. This is what it felt like. What do you know from your experiences? And uh, he was the one that really confirmed that it sounds, because there, there's reports of a certain vampire in New Orleans. And I write about it in the book there about this whole experience. And the one who appears like that, and that's pretty much as Emma, what people have described. I didn't know about it before. I just experienced it. But the energy really is a draining, like the life force is being sucked out of you. And a compulsion to come closer to him where you're almost not thinking anymore. It's it's really scary. And so that's that's probably the scariest thing I've ever, because it, it's like, a, you know, in Harry Potter, when they talk about the Dementors and yeah. how they just, you know, it just felt like that. It was draining all the life force out of you. It was horrible. And when you, I'm interested to know, like, was this like a plain looking guy? Was he dressed weird? What did his skin look like? I mean, stuff like that, you know? Do you um, know? So it was, you know, was at nine. I'm going, so you've just got the okay. little gotcha. street lights and, uh-huh. and it's not in that part of the French Quarter and all that. It's not like, you know, big street lights. They're smaller. And he was kind of standing in the dark um, and he had, you know, dark clothes on. So I can't tell you that I, you know, um, and thankfully he did not get close like to see his eyes, you know, or anything like that. Gotcha. Um, but he never so, moved from the middle of the street, just standing no, there. With his legs apart and like he was just like pulling in the energy. 
you know, just, and it just gave you the most fearful thing. Just, it was horrible. What about, um, okay, so the last one I want to talk about, I know we're running over a little bit. Casket Girl? Yes, yes, tell me about that. Okay, so there's a famous convent in New Orleans called the Ursuline Convent, and it's one of the oldest. It was back before um, the nuns were there. They left France way back when, you know, Louisiana changed hands from the French to the Spanish and before it became part of the U.S. And so these nuns were sent there um, when Louisiana was owned, I think, by the Spanish to come and do work. And then the French took back control. But the nuns, you know, um, always tried to keep Ursuline going. And so the sisters worked over and over. And in the book, I'll skip over that for now, but all these miracles happened there where the nuns would pray for safety when everything else was being messed up with, you know, New Orleans and going between governments and all that. That always um, somehow... uh, Stayed. And even like during times General Jackson went and asked like for help and it was said, you know, the prayers they did helped him, you know, with things. So consider a very sacred place. But when France took over again, they were trying to populate New Orleans. And first they just took like really impoverished women from the streets and, and some from the prisons and they shipped them to New Orleans to kind of uh, entice men to settle there, like, oh, you can have this woman. Um, and then as New Orleans started to grow, they had to send the nicer girls, as they would call it. And they would send these girls from France. They would come from like a finishing school and they had a trunk with them that would have their clothes, their dowry. And the French government provided this. They would go to their families and say, we want to send your girls. We're going to help them find husbands. And we're giving them this little trunk full of clothes and nice things. And the trunks were in the in the form of a casket, but like a little bit of a smaller size casket. So they started calling these girls um, casket girls because that's what their trunks look like. So they would stay at Ursuline Convent and the nuns would help them find a good, respectable husband, right, and get them married off. And that's how they were trying to settle New Orleans to get people to start moving and setting up shop and homes in the city. But as the story goes, one evening, these women arrived in New Orleans by ship. They were the latest casket girls. But instead of arriving during the day, they arrived at night. And they had caskets, but they weren't the small ones. They were like a full, like, coffin-sized casket. And they were locked tight. And when the girls got to the convent, they said, no, ours aren't to be opened. They have to go upstairs, and we can never open them until the day we're married and we leave. And so they were put upstairs and and on the third floor. So the legend says that one of the nuns got really curious and went up to the third floor and wanted to open one of the caskets to see why they had to be locked. And when she when she found it, it was open and it was empty. And so she went and looked at the others and they were empty as well. And she went to talk to the other nuns and um, the nuns, in whatever way they decided, believed that these were vampires in the caskets. They saw some dirt in there and some other things. And because they were empty, they were convinced that this is how um, the casket girls brought over vampires from Europe. So the nuns decided to do a blessing to protect the the convent. They took more than 8,000 screws 
and they had them blessed and put in holy water. And then they screwed all the caskets down. And then they had those 8,000 screws put in every single window in the convent. And so that nothing could get through. It was blessed with salt and holy water. And so they thought, okay, the vampires um, that were out of their caskets at this time, they wouldn't be able to come back in the convent. They'd have to go somewhere. And so um, once the screws were all put in place, the nuns reported the girls came downstairs and they were upset. They wouldn't go to sleep. They were screaming, saying, no, 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 you can't do this. And they heard howling outside um, and everything in the convent was shaking. And then when the nuns went back upstairs, all of the um, windows were open. And the sisters tried to shut the windows again and put the screws back in, but the windows kept blowing open and they would keep trying, you know, over and over, but the vampires would still come in and out, it was said. And so the legend says vampires, these were the first ones that came over in Europe and that these girls and their families cared for these aristocratic type vampires for centuries and they provided for them. They snuck them over that way and then they slipped out and left Ursuline Convent and went to live in other places in the city. And this is how the first vampires settled in um, in the city. So, um, Is that convent you know, still there? Yeah, you can go look and everything and, you know, it's it's such an interesting name, the way it was named un under Ursuline, because, you know, Ursuline is a really old history, and St. Ursula is what they're calling it, but she was the daughter of a king in Europe of this century, king, and she was supposed to be married off, um, and she didn't want to be, she didn't want to be married off, and so she asked for all these um her father, if there's any way she could get out of it, and she went on a pilgrimage and taking a lot of girls with her, trying to, you know, appeal not to get married. And so she did all these things. It's supposed to be like a place to always protect and um, where women could make their voyage to safety like that. And it was said these women maybe at one time had been protected by vampires. Um, and so they owed them a debt in that way throughout history. And so they agreed to bring them uh, over in that way and let them escape into New Orleans and where they've been ever since. So um, you don't, you know, you can go and see. Um, uh, you know, they say, that, of course, the vampires don't live there any longer, but there have been people that say they've felt like they've seen one or two walk the grounds or come around there, you know, maybe just checking it out. But it's got an amazing history. It's a really, really interesting place to, to visit. That is great. And I really enjoyed this conversation with you, Kayla. I want you to take a moment to tell my listeners where they can find out more information about all your other books and how they can keep up with any other projects you're working on. Oh, thank you. My website is exploreyourspirit.com. And I've got my six books on there with information. You can find them all on Amazon and Barnes and Noble, wherever you shop. And um, I've got online courses you can take there, uh, a blog where I write about all these things. Um, you can go read more about Spirits in New Orleans on there, too, including how um, I was invited to go to the Anne Rice Vampire Ball and the Witches Ball when I was on book tour and spoke at a conference that um, Anne Rice there was the only uh, one that was a nonfiction author that was asked to go because she liked my book about New Orleans as a guide. So that was a great time going to the vampire balls that were thrown there <laughs> that she yeah, did. That and uh, the Witches Ball, that's pretty amazing they do there too. So um, 
just so many amazing things in the city there. All right. Very good. Kayla, many blessings to you. And I really appreciate your time. Thank you. Happy Mardi Gras. Thank you for listening. I invite you to follow my other podcast, Mysterious Radio. Please share this show with others that are interested in the paranormal. I want to give a special thanks to our co-creator and executive producer, Kim Kyle, who brought this show to you today. And working hard behind the scenes, our team of four, I want to thank them as well. I am your host, K-Town, and you're listening to Paranormal Fears. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry. Sorry. We're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No. Lucky Land Casino. With cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.